This afternoon here in Owen Sound Canadian Reformed Church, we are busy going through the Ten Commandments, and we have reached the Seventh Commandment. We're looking at it as we find it in the Heidelberg Catechism. So in connection with that, we will be reading together from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, the verses 1 to 7, and you can find that on page 1346 of your pew Bible. Page 1,346 of your pew Bible. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So far. We'll also be reading together from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41, and you can find that on page 556 of your book of praise. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives, both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at the seventh commandment. In this, we're naturally going to be discussing some issues that are uncomfortable, but they're important issues. They're issues that ought to be discussed even in the home. We feel uncomfortable discussing things related to intimacy in the home, and that's only natural. Ever since the fall into sin, Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. If you remember, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve hid. And of course, they're hiding for other reasons, but when they came out, they said, oh, we were naked, and so we hid. The thing is that it was not always so. Speaking about things that were related to intimacy was a beautiful thing before the fall into sin. Intimacy is something that's to be enjoyed, but in the right manner. And it's when it's used wrongly, when it's spoken of wrongly, that is when it brings in shame. 
Because that's when it mixed, when it is mixed with sin. Today, people younger than ever are being exposed to sex in the world. It seems that the porn industry, for example, is trying desperately to get its hold on people at a younger and younger age to enslave them. Society is doing its level best to normalize it at the widest extent possible. And now the people who abstain, the people who save themselves from marriage are seen as the odd ones out. If you want to remain pure for marriage, you're seen as the unusual one. Maybe you'll have it at work. If you get married and you're a little bit younger, people will ask you, oh, how long have you been married? Oh, so many months. Have any kids yet? No? No? It's seen as being unusual. Society has embraced doing what you want, when you want, and with whom you want. And no one may say otherwise. Not too long ago, I read a comment on Facebook under an article that spoke about the devastating effects of pornography. It was an article written by the blogger Matt Walsh. A man wrote, How do people still believe no sex before marriage works out? You buy a car without test driving and tell me if you're 100% satisfied. We agree that this is wrong. This is disgusting reasoning. Matt Walsh put it bluntly but well in his response to this person, saying, your wife is not a product that you buy. This analogy is idiotic to an unfathomable degree. And we, although we may not use the same language, agree with that sentiment 100%. But the reality of the situation is that while we don't take it to the same extent as that particular individual, all of us tend to have sliding scales of morality. We tend to have sliding scales of morality when it comes to exposure to or indulgence of our lusts. You do. I do. We all do. The question is, where do we stop? We have in our minds a sliding ratio of what's okay. And where you sit is further down the line than where I sit. Where you sit might be not as far down the line as where this man sits. You might fall somewhere in between. But where do we stop? That is where the Bible puts it very bluntly. We read that quite clearly in Ephesians 5. As we read today, as we read today, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, or as other translations put it, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any other kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And today we'll be looking at the seventh commandment through that lens, not even a hint. And we'll look, first of all, at cutting out sin, second, satisfaction in this life, and third, satisfaction in Christ. At this point, some of you might be thinking, lust is mainly a problem for young men, right? Shouldn't this be something more for young men's speech? 
Well, that may be true with certain kinds. And it's good to be aware of that when it comes to young men in your own home. Or it's good to be aware of that if you are a young man yourself. The percentage of men between 18 and 34 who visit pornographic sites at least once a month is, according to statistics gathered by safefamilies.org, about 70%. Among women, it's significantly less, but it's still startlingly high. Nine out of ten children between ages 8 and 16 have been exposed. And the average first age of exposure to pornography is 11 years old. Those from other backgrounds and other age groups, too, are not immune. Lust, if entertained, is something that strikes indiscriminately and ensnares those who don't have their guards up. But it's not limited to pornography either. It strikes you wherever you are weak. As we read in Ephesians 5, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Another way that you can translate this covetousness is greed. So fornication and all uncleanness or greed, let it not even be named among you. Interesting, isn't it? You have sexual immorality and greed lumped together. Because lust is in itself a form of greed. When you lust after someone, even if you're just committing adultery emotionally, it is a form of greed. And that's at the heart, isn't it? You're desiring something, you're desiring after something that isn't yours to fulfill your own satisfaction. And that's a mindset that won't magically change after you're married. If marriage and intimacy are just about your own satisfaction, there is a problem. Because marriage is about two becoming one flesh, and there is so much more to it than personal satisfaction. Let's take it apart for a moment. If intimacy, if marriage is all about you, what will the end result be? When you're unsatisfied, when the other person is not living up to your expectations anymore, then the reason for you being together is no longer fulfilled. Your greed is no longer being satisfied. There's no reason to continue. And you'll feel more freedom to enter into the quote-unquote marketplace again. And that is ultimately what you're settling, setting yourself up for when you look at something like pornography or harlequin romance novels or gaze at men or women at the beach. You're going into the marketplace for male or female flesh. You're feeding your own covetousness. You're feeding your own greed. You're feeding your desire for something outside of what God has granted you at this point in your life. Our Lord Jesus Christ understood that it's that desire, this greed that's at the heart of it, and it's for that reason that he says the words that we find in Matthew 5, verse 27 and following. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Having the desire of physical intimacy is not wrong. Simply looking 
at a beautiful woman is not wrong. It's when simply having an attractive man catch your eye is not wrong. It's when they capture your imagination that it becomes wrong. It's when you look again out of desire that it becomes sin. And that's what Christ is pointing out. That's why he follows this statement in Matthew 5 with the very next words. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Our Lord is saying here, lust will destroy you. Desire for something that does not belong to you will destroy you. Don't let it plant seeds in you. He's extending salvation to us. Salvation from our greed. But he's also warning us about the danger that we read about in James 1 verse 14. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So what then? Where does that leave us? Where do we find satisfaction if not there? Because that's ultimately what you're doing when you let yourself get carried away by lust, isn't it? You're trying to find satisfaction. You're trying to find relief. Where do you go now? To take that first step, you do need to realize what the Bible says about the ultimate end of taking satisfaction outside the proper bounds. And we can find that in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7. Looking at verse 6 and following. The teacher here is giving an example to a young man who's in his care, quite possibly his son. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. So it's quite possibly his literal son, but can also be used for somebody who has a man in his care and is taking that fatherly role. And he's warning him. He says, At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice, and I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a man devoid of understanding. Passing along the corner, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. No, this young man is tempting himself. It's not a sin for him to be walking down the street. But he is allowing himself to go where he might be tempted. He's just going into the neighborhood. It's not such a big deal. But he's allowing himself to go down there. We read right after that, 
There and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking in every corner. If there was any doubt that he knew that she would be there, that he just happened to be walking around the corner, well, this removes it. This removes that doubt because she was known to be there at times outside, at times in the open square, lurking in every corner in that particular neighborhood. So she caught him and kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Oh, how good this sounds to that young man. Instant satisfaction with a willing woman. Where's the harm in that, he thinks to himself. The teacher continues. A little bit further on, he says, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The satisfaction is temporary, says the teacher, and the effects of it can be devastating. It might be going into an area where you know you might be tempted and thinking, well, it's not a big deal. But, Temptation, desire gives into temptation, which gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. The effects of it can be devastating. It can ruin careers, reputations, and marriages. It's not worth it. And so he says, Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Don't go down that path, says the teacher. Don't even begin to expose yourself to possible temptation. If there is a way that you know you will be exposing yourself to temptation, Jesus Christ said it again. Cut that off. Cut it out of your life. Remove it. So, what do we do then? Is that it? Do we cut it off? The teacher also speaks to that. You can find that in Proverbs 5. He says, find, find satisfaction in your wife, for that's what you were created for. When you disrupt this, you get only temporary pleasure and temporary satisfaction, but it only goes downhill from that. But when you rejoice in your wife and invest in your wife, He speaks of this in Proverbs 5, verse 17. Rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. This goes for before and after marriage. 
after marriage, you might think, oh, okay, that makes sense. But wait a second, how about before? You're not married to the woman you're watching. You're not married to the man you're comparing your future husband to. Don't try to find satisfaction in that person. You won't be able to. After you're married, invest in your wife. The same can go for women and wives with regards to their husbands. Are you unsatisfied with your husband because of material you've been reading? Because of things you're watching? Husbands, wives, invest in your spouse. Fight desire with desire. Good and physical intimacy is spiritual warfare. Take time for it. Invest in it. Fill up your spouse's cup until it overflows. For those of you who are single, you can see that the potential is there for a future hope. But you also see that letting everything ride on a future hope that might or might not come to pass, that's just not working out for me. That's not fulfilling me. Don't let everything ride on that future hope. Instead, we're called to direct our eyes to the one who can help. We read in Lamentations 3, verse 25 to 27, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. When you're walking through life as a single person, you're not waiting for a spouse. You are not finding your identity in your spouse. But you are finding your identity in the Lord. And with that as your foundation, the question changes for you. The question is no longer, how can I be abstinent until something changes? How can I be abstinent until I find a spouse? Or until my spouse warms up to me more? Or until X, Y, or Z falls into place? Instead, it's God has given me grace for today. God will give me grace for tomorrow. Will I wait for the Lord? I will wait. Brothers and sisters, the Heidelberg Catechism talks about here how we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in Scripture, we also find that we were bought, body and soul. This is where a theology of the body becomes important. A theology of the body becomes of central importance when you're thinking about this. Your body is not something that's removed from your soul. Your body is not something that's down there that I have to deal with for now. Your desires are not something that are forever evil, that forever chain you. But Christ died for you, body and soul. You might feel weak, but he gives you the strength to fight. He hasn't just redeemed your soul. He has redeemed you, body and soul. He 
extends his spirit to those who would ask him for them, to those who would lean on them. The spirit is there. You might think, fill up my spouse's cup. You mentioned earlier, fill up my spouse's cup until it overflows. That's hard. Then I'm empty. If I pour everything into my spouse, I have nothing left for me. But that's not right, is it? Because the Spirit is there. We look to the Lord and ask Him for the strength, for the grace to be able to do that day in and day out. The Lord will give you strength. The Lord will supply. But He doesn't do so alone either. Look to those who can support you in your marriage. Look to those who can support you in your war against sin. He has given you a body of believers. He has given you brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom, if not nearly all of whom, have struggled in the same way with the same things. They are there. They are a gift from God to help guide you. And they'll help fill you too. It's part of their task as the body of Christ. But most importantly, look to the one who will provide in all things. Because in him alone will you find that full satisfaction. In him truly, he'll he'll fill up your cup and let it overflow with love. And from there you'll find the freedom to love totally. To love unreservedly. To love unconditionally. In him, you will find true love. Amen.